0: Thank you, Taylor. Well, it's good to be back again. We are moving into Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and it, it's a pivot point in in this book. Uh, the first three chapters, all Paul is doing is explaining who we are in Christ. Because he knows that is that is key for us to understand before we start living the Christian life, right? And that's, and that's chapters 4 through 6, that's what Paul is going to explain. How it is we ought to live as Christians. He only tells us what to do after he has established who we are in Christ. Uh, namely, that, that we're rooted in love. And, and why did God love us? He loved us because he loved us, right? That's what, he said, that's what Paul says in chapter 2 verse 4. ...because of the great love with which He loved us. It's the best kind of love because it's not based on anything that we do. And therefore, no matter how messed up we are... ...or how many mistakes we make, we can't lose that love. He loves us because He loves us. And so out of that deep reservoir of Christ's love... ...we are then to go out and do. Not to get the love, but out of the love. And so that's where, what chapter 4 brings us to. Now, there are divisions all around. Uh, and they seem to be amplified in ways that uh, they weren't even just a few decades ago. There are political divisions. There are racial divisions. There's ideological divisions. Religious divisions are a major topic Um, And you know, uh, this, the the response to this COVID-19... the divisions that exist actually kind of dictate, provide a script... for how you're supposed to respond. Like, folks on the left side of the political spectrum have a response to COVID-19. People on the right side of the political spectrum also have kind of a scripted response... for how they ought to, to respond. Like our divisions actually uh, direct us down certain paths of action. And they're all review, uh, rooted, all of these divisions are rooted in differences. Whether ideological or racial or socioeconomical, whatever. Differences. And there's an important book that explains um, a lot of this by Dr. Seuss. It's called The Sneetches. And it's a book about these snitches, these, these creatures that live on beaches. And some of them have stars on their bellies. And the sneeches with stars on their bellies feel pretty special. And they think they're better than the snitches that don't have stars on their bellies. And so, you know, if you're a little sneech, a little sneech child with uh, no star on your belly, you don't get invited to play with the star-bellied sneeches. If you're an adult Sneetch with no star on your belly, you don't get invited to dinner parties. You don't get to take trips. You're left out. You're on the outside. And this story of the sneeches it speaks to kids. And it speaks to adults too. Because we have all, it is a universally human experience to feel as though you're on the outside. Right? To feel as though there is a, a line uh, of, of like social harmony and you stand outside of that line. Right? The two-year-old uh, that f- feels it when, when mom brings home the new sibling, the newborn baby, and the two-year-old starts crying and throwing fits because they feel like they're on the outside. The kindergartner feels it when they're not invited to the, to the birthday party that all their classmates are invited to. Uh, the fourth grader feels it when they're picked last because uh, to be on the, the kickball team at recess, to be on the kickball, uh, in the kickball game at recess. Um, we feel it throughout life. Even, even at the end, like you never get old of it. Kids, listen listen to me. It's not something that just you feel. Um, when you get to be an adult, you feel this being on the outside there are folks in nursing homes that feel as though they are left out from bingo or whatever it is that they've not been included in. Right from the very beginning, all the way to the end of our lives, we deal with this sense of being on the outside. And what happened to the sneeches? When they went when the the, the sneeches without stars, they finally get the stars on their belly, they manufacture these stars on their bellies, and all of a sudden the star-bellied sneeches. They're scrambling. What do we do? There's there's equality. we got to arbitrarily redraw the lines. And so they they redraw the lines. And that's what happens. Like you get into one uh, circle and then you realize there's a whole new set of circles to which to navigate that you now want to be on. C.S. Lewis says it's like peeling an onion. You just keep peeling it and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Think of it like this. You, you want to work for a company. There's a company that you think is a great company doing great things. You think, if I could just work for that company, then I would be on the inside. And then you get a job at that comp- company. It's an entry-level job. And it's not long before you're thinking, if I could just get to management, if I could get inside that circle, man, then, 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 I, could, then I will have arrived. And then you get to management. And then you think, man, if I could just become an executive. And then you finally get to the executive status that you've longed for. And then you realize that the executives, there's circles there. that that Some executives like to sail on the weekends and some like to hunt. And you're trying to figure out which circle you want to be in on. So what do we do? How do we resolve our dilemmas? How do we resolve this deep, ...profound, universally human feeling of being on the outside looking in. Like, I I don't want to be 95 years old... ...pouting in the corner of the nursing home common area... ...because I wasn't invited to the game night with my peers. Is there a way for us to overcome this sense of alienation that we all feel... Christianity has an answer, and the answer is the church. And you may think, no, whoa, slow down. The church, I've felt the line. The lines are thicker in the church than they are anywhere else. I've been in churches, and I've been an outcast in a church, and I've found cliques in churches. I've, I've not experienced anything of, of what I desire in community in the church setting. Well, I... I understand that concern. I've experienced a bit of that myself in the church. I want you to, to, to hang with us as we read our text today. Because Paul gives us a very um, compelling reason why the church is the only way for us to finally get from the outside to the inside. Finally go from being on the outside looking in to being on the inside of what we ultimately long for. So our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All flesh is like the grass and its glory like the flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. And it does. And this is God's word that we've read. Let's pray as we uh, consider it. Father, uh, come to you again in prayer. Uh, I am powerless. And my words are, are, are empty, apart from your spirit, uh, infusing each and every word with your power, with resurrection power. And I pray that that would happen, that my words uh, would explode upon hearts this morning, transforming us as a people transforming us as King's Cross Church. This passage this morning is, is so rich. It is a map for how we are to operate. And I ask that you would help us to understand it as we move forward as a church body. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage invites us to consider three things. Unity, the unity ...of us, as a body of Christ, of the Church, of King's Cross, unity... ...which is solidified and strengthened through diversity of all things. So unity, which is strengthened through diversity... ...which leads to union, union with Christ. That's the goal of it all. And so those are the headings, unity, diversity, and union, union with Christ. So first, uh, unity, verse one, right off the bat, Paul says, "Walk in a manner worthy of your calling." What's the calling? Uh, In one sense, the calling is chapters one through three. Everything Paul describes in chapters one through three—that's our calling—and it's all condensed, compressed, zipped up into that one little word, calling. Um, But but particularly, what Paul has in mind, verse three. ...is that we would be, that we would maintain unity, right? We're called to be one. You remember Jesus in the garden as he's praying for the church. He's praying for a oneness of the church. And Paul here is saying, remember your call to unity. Maintain it. And that sounds great, but but the big question is... ...how do we maintain unity? How do we do it? Do we uh, link arms with Lionel Richie and Tina Turner... And MJ and seeing every day together, we are the world. Do we get together in affinity groups? Is affinity the key for unity? Like, if we can get together with like minded people that send their kids to this school or, or all work at this place or all live in this neighborhood, like that's the key to maintaining unity? No, not at all. In fact, remember, this letter is written uh, to primarily Jews, but also, I mean, to primarily Gentile audience in Ephesus. But also Jews as well. These two groups that clashed. Like they didn't like each other at all. And so Paul is calling these two groups to be united. It has to be something stronger than affinity. Or just sort of positive feelings about oneness. And Paul gives us very concrete things to do. Ingredients for unity. Verse 2. Here they are. Humility. That's the first one humility. Uh, humility is, is, uh, is a uniquely Christian virtue. Like the Greeks and the Romans, if you look at the, if you look at the word humility in Greek, it's never used positively. Um, it's always like a bad thing. like you, you, if you're humble, you're just gonna get trampled upon. And yep, it's a Christian virtue and Paul calls us towards it. N- uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the, the, the philosopher um, in the 1800s, ...hated Christianity, and he called it a slave's religion. And he called it a slave's religion because of its exaltation of this virtue of humility. Right? So what's humility? Why do, why do Christians value this uniquely Christian trait or characteristic? Think of humility like this. It's not thinking um, less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. Jesus perfectly embodied humility. And did he think lowly of himself? If Peter said, you know, you are the Christ, did Jesus say, oh, stop it, Peter, I'm not? No, I mean, Jesus, if if you take just what Jesus said, he is talking about himself all the time. ...and he's talking about himself in, in the most soaring terms. Like, he, just looking at what Jesus said, it's all about Jesus. He's totally wrapped up in himself. And yet, you compare his, his, uh, his words with his life, and what is he doing? He's, he's using all of that power to pour himself out for others. Right? It's, in, it's, in, it's the complete inverse of anything we've ever seen before. Um, there's a lot of people that talk big about themselves, but they're utterly selfish. But Jesus is talking big. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the bread of heaven. You eat for me. You'll never go hungry. I can give you living water. He says, I am the great I am. Like, I am God. And yet, what is this God doing? What is he doing? He's pouring himself out for others. And a wonderful example of this is the foot washing, where Jesus washes his his disciples' feet. It is a um, it is a selfless act. I mean, it, it was typically reserved for Gentile servants, not Jews. It was it was below it was below Jews. Um, it was a Gentile task. And here Jesus is. I mean, think about it. Dirty. Somebody takes off their shoes and the. Uh, in the room, you know, a room away, and you can smell their feet. Do you want to handle their dirty feet and take care of that? No. But here's Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and then, of course, it's only it's only the beginning of his ultimate work, his ultimate sacrifice, on the cross, where he pours himself out for us. Now, contrast that that example of Christ with our own. Like when we get up, what's the first thought that goes into your mind? Okay, I'm up. How can I get ready for my day? How can I eat a breakfast that will satisfy my appetite? How can I get to my job on time and do my tasks on time? How can I look after my desires, my wants, and my wishes? Think about all of the energy that is expended every waking hour to address your own needs and wants and desires. And what, what, what Paul is calling us to as a community is to discard all of that and begin to think about the interests of others. And you know what happens? And you think, well, but then my needs won't get met. Well, it's not true if everybody else is thinking about your needs before their own. Like it's a community marked by love. And that's what Paul is talking. That's what, that's what humility is. Thinking more of others in their needs. Next uh, word is uh, gentleness. Verse two, this is in verse 2. The ingredients for unity. Humility and then gentleness. And I like the word meekness better. What is meekness? Well, meekness ain't weakness, as I've heard before. Someone has said this. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights, either in the presence of God... men. Did you hear that? The absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. That is not very American at all. Right? We want to constantly assert our personal rights. I'm an American. I can do, it's a free country. I can do whatever I want. Meekness defers. And here's the thing. Jesus says this in the the Beatitudes. He says that the meek, do do you know what happens to the meek? Blessed are the meek they will inherit the earth. Um, Do you know how counterintuitive that is? right? If you want to get your slice of the world's pie, if you want to inherit the earth, what do you have to do? You have to trample on others. You have to exert your will over against the will of others. And that's not what meekness is. That's not not what God has called us to because what, what Christ has done is he's flipped the economy of the world on its head So that meekness is the means by which we inherit the earth. And that's how you rise to power. That's how Christ did. He's now exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, be meek, defer your desires to others, and then Christ will lift you up. The third thing that is mentioned in verse 2 is patience patience, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Why are you impatient? Are you impatient? Do you struggle with, with patience? Um, why are you impatient? Well, uh, this is probably what happens. This is probably why you're impatient. You have um, set yourself up on a perch where you are kind of almighty of your world and your demand is that those around you, be it your kids or your, your, your workers that are, your, your, your underlings at work or whatever it is, that they... Um, ...submit to your almighty timeline. And if they don't do that, then you get frustrated, you get impatient, right? You're impatient because it's all about you. And therefore you're impatient with others. And Paul calls us not to that, but to... to, to, Notice how all of this is about deferring your own wants and needs and desires and trusting God... The final ingredient is bearing one another in love. Now, we, we tend to think that love is this thing that just sort of comes natural, right? But look, bearing one another in love. Like, you bear a load. You don't bear something that comes natural to you. Well, something that you bear is something that, like, burdens you. If I bear a backpack on a backpacking trip... Um, it makes the trip more difficult. The hike would be easier. Breathing the thin mountain air would be easier if I didn't have that 40-pound pack on my back. But I bear it. And that's what, that's what Paul is calling us as a church to do. To bear one another in love. Which means it will be difficult. And, and, and that's, that's part of this, the whole point here. Unity is not easy. In fact, it's impossible. This is such... A tall order. And this is why Paul says the only way that we can do this is we have to first be rooted in the love of Christ. We can't give what we don't have. And so we have to see Christ, see his example, and be rooted in his love so that we ourselves can love others. Well, why, why does it matter that we're one? Who cares, who cares about oneness? Look, look, look at what Paul says next, uh, verse, verse 4. Our, our unity, our oneness is united, verse 4, in the unity of God. Look, there's, there's one Spirit, verse 5. There's one Lord, Jesus. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we're called, it's the oneness of God from which our unity stems. And we're called to maintain unity, but how do we do it? How, how do, not how do we do it, it's the, four, the, the humble, patience, bearing one another in love. Those are kind of like the big macro um, categories for how this happens. But specifically, how is unity strengthened and solidified? It's through diversity. Right? That, may seem, that seems surprising, right? The Sneeches, their big problem was diversity. Some had stars, some didn't. Difference was a social liability. But Paul is saying our difference, our diversity of gifting is actually a social adhesive. It's a glue that binds us together. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The but, in verse 7, is a huge um, transition point. right? Paul's unity, unity, unity of the Godhead, unity of the church. And then, but, you have been graced or gifted. Christ has dropped down his gifts to each one of us. That's right, all of us, according to the measure of Christ's gifts, gift. Now, verses 8 through 10 are very complex. I would love to... ...spend time digging into them, but we're not for time's sake. We're going to move on to verse 11. Um, So Jesus gives these gifts. He gave the gifts of of apostleship and prophetic ministry. Uh, And by the way, the apostles and the prophets... ...what Paul is referring to there is Peter and Paul and James and John... ...and the other apostles and prophets who gave us the Scriptures. And and the the reason we know this is because in in chapter 2 verse 20... ...Paul says that it's the apostles and prophets that laid the foundation... ...of the church. And so the foundation has been laid... ...with the writing of the last book of, of Scripture. The foundation has been laid... ...and that's why there's no longer apostles and prophets. No one is speaking... ...God's Word any longer. So the canon... The canon is closed. Okay. Um, and so, anyway, apostles and prophets. And then Christ gifts the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers um, are ministering. Christ is dropping down like grace bombs, gifts. ...upon his church, and he's been doing it throughout history. He did it to Paul. Paul was riding on his horse looking for Christians that he could persecute... ...and stamp out, and and, and Christ drops a grace grenade upon Paul's path... ...and literally knocks him off his horse. And all of a sudden, all of Paul's life is reordered around the supremacy of Jesus. And now, Paul is writing this letter... ...to the church at Ephesus and he's spreading Christianity throughout the known world. And that's what Christ does. Christ did it to me. When I was uh, in high school, um, just finished my junior year, it was the summer of 97. And I uh, sensed God, I, I was, I was be- becoming concerned about what I would do after high school. Where would I go to college, what was I going to do? I would never, never given the question any thought. And so I began to pray. And I talked to my youth pastor and he said, I said, you know, I wonder if maybe God's calling me to ministry. I don't know. He said, well, the best thing for you to do is to begin to read scripture more regularly, be a leader in our youth group, um, pray, talk to other more mature Christians about this and really kind of explore this question. It's really good advice, by the way. Uh, and I went home, and uh, that night I read, I, opened, I just randomly opened my scripture. Because I, no, I didn't really know how to study the thing. And I opened it, and guess where I opened it? This passage right here. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I began to read. And I began to think, this is, this is what God is calling me to do. And there was a complete transformation. I mean, I was, uh, I was not a shining... Student. In fact, uh, I was very apathetic towards school and learning of any kind. I, uh, my, my, my SAT, ACT scores were abysmal. I was in remedial math during the summer. I, I took my driver's ed test, like, I think it was the third time that I actually passed the thing. I just sort, I, sort of hopeless in many ways, and yet Christ drops down this grace bomb upon my life, it's a gift, right? It's a gift. And a transformation takes place. All of a sudden, I begin to read everything I can get my hands on. I, I, I love school. And if you saw me, the college student, versus me, the high school student, you would be, uh, you'd be shocked at the transformation that took place. And that's what Christ does. He gifts us. He calls us. And for us, for, for, for evangelists, pastors, shepherds, and teachers, the calling primarily is to minister the Word of God. That's my job, to minister the Word of God at weddings, at funerals, uh, in the church service, at baptisms, at the beginning of life, at the end of life, ministering the Word in counseling sessions, in, in, in hospitals, ministering the Word of God. Not only the Word of God, but the Word edible, and the word liquefied through the sacraments, right? Word and sacrament, ministering it. And that's my call. One author says that uh, the word of God is the golden thread woven through the tapestry of all pastoral life and work. And so maybe you're joining us and you're not a part of a local church or, or, or even if you are, the, the primary task... ...of a pastor is to minister the Word to the congregation, to the body of Christ. And look at what happens. And we're gonna, It's, it's going to feel like we're getting a bit granular here, but it, it's, it's important because um, this has a huge impact on, on you, on you guys. Enough about me, let's talk about you. Verse 12. Um, the, the, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers... Minister the word, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, here's the question. Some translations have, after equip the saints, a comma, a comma, um, which changes the meaning, right? The King James Version has a comma. The Greek doesn't have any punctuation, no spacing, so there's not help. It's really a matter of interpretation. How how are the translators interpreting the text? And look, look at this. If it has a comment, it reads like this. Pastors, teachers, evangelists minister the word to equip the saints to do the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Notice who's doing the ministering under that reading. It's the pastors and teachers. And so good, good news for the saints, right? All, nor, all ordinary Christians, um, the, the congregation, they just get equipped, but that's not what Paul is saying. I don't think that's the best way to, to read this. Get that comma out of there. Can, I, I'm giving you permission. You can even write in your Bibles. If you have a comma there, put a little X through it. And look at what happens when you, change, when you get rid of that comma. The, the, the pastor and preacher equips the saints for the work of ministry. You see, you see the difference, right? You, church, are being equipped and gifted as well each of you, all of you, to do the work of ministry. That all of us together are doing the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And so your gifts matter. They matter. And this is why, this is what, we're, we're a church plant. And this is why church plants are important and, and really um, have kind of a vitality to them. Because when you get involved in a church plant, Everybody gets sort of brought in to ministry just out of sheer necessity. There's no, there's no systems and structures like an established church. And so everybody's helping out. We've got people helping out with graphic design. we got Tommy back here helping out, who I've mentioned before, with all the tech side. Taylor and Abby and Zach helping out with music. And Do you have music? Can you play music? Gifts? Let's call this a little call for for more assistance there. You're welcome to join the club. Um, We've got people helping out with uh, church finances and budgeting. We've got uh, people helping out with meals and sending emails out and starting meal trains. This is what the church is called to. This work of ministry. And here's the thing. It builds up together, all of us working together and serving our gifts, build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until... We all attain the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now notice, it's not the building up of Casey, or Tommy, or you, or the person that's two pews behind you, whenever we start meeting together. It's not, it's not just us individually. It's corporate growth. Look at verse 3. Until we all attain the unity. If a church corporate is not growing up together, then it's a failure of Christian discipleship. Right? Paul's not thinking of this in terms of like me and my Bible study and my little, you know, Bethmore study. I, I I got this study and I, I study it every day, and I'm growing up, and you got another little Christian. No, it's all together. Growing up into maturity so that we can reach the fullness, the full stature of Christ. So the call is is to unity and that unity is solidified through diversity, right? Through the diversity of gifting that Christ gives and the goal is union. All of us are to grow up, little us, little King's Cross, is to grow up into the full stature of Christ, its head. Verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, notice. Notice how Christ centered all of this is. Did you notice? Right? Okay. Preface, chapter 3, Paul's prayer. We are to be rooted in the love of Christ, the love of Christ who is ascended and seated. It's called the session. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he's dropping down grace bombs upon his church, gifting, not just like the spiritual elite, gifting all members of Christ's church with various gifts so that the church can then build up, being rooted in Christ and His love, can then be built up into the headship of Christ. So that our little body can grow up into the full magnificent stature of Christ and His headship over us. So, let's consider the original question. Right? Remember, I don't, I, like I said earlier, I don't want to be 95 ...in a nursing home, pouting in the corner of the common room... ...because I didn't get invited into uh, game night. Like, how do we deal with this social division... ...and this feeling of being on the outside looking in? It's clear from the text, actually. Look at verse 4. There is one spirit... ...verse 5, one Lord... Verse 6, one God and Father of all. Now notice the, the Trinitarian shape of all of this. Right? This, is the, the, Paul, this whole uh, passage is laced with Trinitarian thought and implications. Okay, now I say the word Trinity. The, the fact that God is, is, is uh, one God and there are three persons, right? The Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You hear that and you think, man, you're this, is, this is the kind of ideas that are batted around in seminary classrooms. Um, this has no bearing on, on life. And, and I'd say, no, it does. Actually, the, tr- the Trinity is fundamental to all of life in the church and all of reality. You know, a lot of us, not all of us, some introverts are loving this quarantine. But many of us are feeling bored and lonely and isolated, and even you introverts out there, if you were totally cut off from all human interaction, you too would feel lonely. That's what loneliness does. That's why that's why solitary confinement is a is a punishment, right? It's a punishment, solitary confinement, because we were we were made to be uh, not alone, but to be with others, to be in community. Now God, there was a time. The scriptures tell us that God created the world out of nothing, right? Ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so there was a time when God was all by Himself, alone. And what do you, th- well, how do you think He felt? Was He lonely? Was He bored? Was He just kind of twiddling His thumbs, wait, trying to figure out something to do with His boring life by Himself? And the answer is no. God was perfectly delighted and satisfied god the father was loving the son and the son was was basking in the father's love and returning that love to the father and the spirit was lovingly serving and basking in the love of the father and the son and serving the father and the son and it was a it was a holy happy land of the trinity where there was all pleasure all delight all ecstasy and love. It was the Trinity. And creation, God didn't make the world and people because he was lonely or bored. He made it. it instead, it was, an, it was an overflow. It was an overflow of the love of the triune God that spilled over and out pops creation. And here's the thing. When Jesus was on the cross, we've talked about this before, his cry of dereliction, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was bearing our sin upon the cross, he was in, in some sense cut off from that eternal, holy, happy land of the Trinity. He was cut off so that we might be brought in. We might be brought in, and that's what's happening. That's what Paul is describing here. We've been brought into fellowship with one another, with the body, with the people, with Christ. And then as we get connected to our head Christ, guess what? We're placed on the inside. And all of a sudden, we are members of the holy, happy land of the Trinity. And we are basking in its glory and delight and love and ecstasy. And here's how it happens. Here's how we're built up. Here's how it becomes a reality. It becomes a reality as you change diapers in the church nursery. As you clean coffee pots following the service. It happens as you compose an email or a text to a member of King's Cross that's suffering and having difficulty. It happens as you compose an email, putting out a meal train. It happens as we do these seemingly ordinary things because what's happening as we're doing all this ordinary stuff and pouring ourselves out for others we're being built up into something extraordinary we're being built up into the into the fellowship that we long for right we're on the outside looking in why is that always the case because we're cut off from the fellowship of our fellowship with God the father and the son and the spirit and this is the means the church is the means by which we get reconnected to that extraordinary fellowship that our hearts long for. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks um, for this incredible uh, call that you've given us to unity. We readily confess that we are pretty uh, pretty much hopeless, hopeless to accomplish it, apart from your power working in us. And we're even dumbfounded a bit that you would use such fallen, broken, selfish individuals to display your glory to the world, and yet you have. And so we pray that you would equip us to do just that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.